Uh, God of peace and justice, we pray for the people of Ukraine today. We pray for peace and the laying down of weapons. We pray for all those who fear for tomorrow, that your spirit of comfort would draw near to them. We pray for those with power over war and peace, for wisdom, discernment, and compassion to guide their decisions. Above all, we pray for all your precious children at risk and in fear, that you would hold and protect them. We pray in the name of Jesus, Prince of Peace. Amen. Uh, let me also just pray for our uh, time in God's word. So Father, we, um, some of us were praying earlier this morning, uh, Psalm 19, and in there it says actually that uh, contained in your truth in the scriptures uh, is joy. And so Lord, we pray that as we look at your word today, that we would experience that joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's no easy way to transition from a prayer about war to starting a sermon, so there's the transition. Uh, I used to have a piece of artwork near my desk uh, in my old office, uh, and it was called Snail by Megan. And I had it there because um, most of you probably don't know this about me. I love snails. I think they're adorable. Um, we used to live down in San Diego County, and every now and again when it would rain, snails would be all over the sidewalks there, and I'd be walking along, and you'd see a few of them crushed into the ground, and the compassion in me made me want to move the rest of the snails that were still escaping the water at very slow speed. So I would, it would take us forever to get where we were going because I would stop and move them in the direction that they were going, hoping that that's where they wanted to end up in the end. <laughs> And so I just, I love snails. I think they're, they're great. And, uh, and so I had this piece of artwork called Snail by Megan up on my desk. But the thing is, Snail by Megan was not uh, a piece that you would find, you know, uh, in Lachma or something. Uh, it was colored in by my friend's daughter, who was about four years old at the time. And uh, it was just a little page from one of her coloring books. But she knew of my love for snails at four years old, and so she was flipping through her coloring book one day and came across a snail, and she colored it in, and then she came and, and gave it to me. Um, and let's say, again, it wasn't a fantastic piece of artwork. In fact, it was stolen art because it was just from a coloring book, so she really doesn't get much credit for it. Um, but if you're into Jackson Pollock, you would actually have liked this. Um, <laughs> what it was was not a, so much a piece of art, but an act of love, this, this adorable four-year-old girl at the time. Um, gave this wonderful act of love. And this week we're continuing to look at what the Apostle Paul called the most excellent way to live uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, and he, uh, he defines this most excellent way of living as a way of self-denying love. That if we can live in that way, then we are doing what he says, living in the most excellent possible way. Um, you know, over the course of this past week, I've actually witnessed a lot of people from our church live this excellent way of love out, uh, coming in day after day to rip carpet and to pound nails and to fill holes and to scrape floors and to install new lighting and to move pews and to clean up. I mean, it was uh, just a master class in self-denying love that I think our church put on this week. Um, it actually takes a lot of self-denial to do what many of you have done this week. Uh, but even with such a monumental effort on the part of so many, I think when it comes to 
self-denying love, we all kind of feel that our attempts are as feeble as Snail by Megan. It's like, you, you know, you, you put as much effort into trying to show love to someone, but in the end, it feels like a poorly colored in, like mostly outside the lines coloring book page that you've offered to somebody. Uh, our efforts don't look impressive, or at least they don't feel very impressive or grand or extraordinary as we're doing that. Um, is that... That's how I feel. I assume if I feel that way that that's how you feel as you try and, and live out this whole self-denying love thing. And I actually don't get the sense that we're a church of proud people who all think we're exceptionally gifted. And many of you are exceptionally gifted, but I don't think most of us are walking around thinking about how great we are. I think most of us probably walk around thinking about how weak and feeble we are. And so perhaps you're being asked to, to lead something, but you've never led anything before, and now you're feeling like, wow, I'm way, way out of my comfort zone. Or you're learning to do hospitality and beginning to use your home in a way that you never have for the first time. It actually even looks weird in the city and culture that we're in. Or maybe it's like you, you don't feel like you have much money to give or very many talents to share. Uh, I think that's kind of where we are as a church, and that's not like a... This is not meant to be a backhanded compliment. This is actually meant to be, uh, uh, we're in the best position we could be. Because actually, if we start not with giftedness, not with like, hey, look at these wonderful things I have to share with everybody, but if we start with self-denying love, then we've actually started in the right place. And so we're in the best possible position we could be as a church because we get to start with love. And according to the passage that we're looking at today, it's actually far, far, far better to start with love than it is giftedness. And that's actually even why Paul wrote this chapter because the Corinthian church was the opposite. He's like, you have every gift. You're the most gifted church I've ever seen, but you lack love. And so, you know, our, our words... Our thoughts, our deeds, the things that Paul talks about here, they're actually only excellent if their source is love. And so today we're going to look at the first three verses only, and we're going to do it under three headings. So excellent words, excellent thoughts, and excellent deeds. Uh, so first, let's look at excellent words. And look again at verse 1. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. And we could spend hours and hours and hours because people have, and we could write books and books and books because people have about what kind of tongues or languages Paul is referring to here. Uh, but I'm going to actually leave that whole question to the side. We're just going to take that question that's probably in your head. I'm going to pick it up. And I'm going to put it right over here. That's where it goes. Uh, because Paul's, that's not Paul's point. The specific languages are not his point. His point here is actually fairly simple. No matter how exalted the language being spoken, what he's saying is without love, it's worthless. And Paul, he's actually, he's using, through his whole passages, he's using superlatives. He's talking about something of the highest degree. So everything that he mentions here, he's talking about it in its most high degree, most extreme example. Um, let me give you an example of some superlative words, okay? Um, I'm not able to speak in the tongues of angels myself, so these words will just be in English. Uh, I think you'll recognize them if you had sixth grade history in America. I know not everyone here has, but I think most of you will recognize these words. So here we go. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war 
testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield. That war the world will little note nor long remember what we say here while it can never forget what they did here. Okay, that's... Uh, now, that was a little bit of fun. But I hope that sound is imprinted on your brain. But that only gets us halfway there. Because notice very clearly what Paul says. He says, if you speak words without love, notice the words, the words are not the clanging symbol. You are. He says, I'm only, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. And so again, Paul's point is fairly simple. No matter how great my gifts of words, whether that's in human language or angelic, or maybe it's the, the ability of a great orator, whatever it is, that without love, I am nothing but noise. And more than that, the way Paul uses the verb I am in the original language, it's not just a static I am, but literally it's I have become. I have become a clanging symbol. And so the point here is the more you speak without love, get this, the more that you speak without love, the more of a noise you become. You can actually increase in your noisiness over time. Now, the converse of that is also true, that the more and more you speak with love as the source of your words, the more and more valuable your words become. And so love is more important than the words themselves. And therefore, your feeble and inexperienced, weak words, where you're like, I just don't know how to express love to this person, but I'm going to try and let some words fall out of my mouth. If the source of those words is love, weak words shared with love are exceedingly more valuable than superlative words without love. Um, I think I've told this story before, but it's worth telling again because I love to tell stories about Emmy's mom. And uh, when I first met Emmy's parents, we were uh, in Greece for our wedding. If you don't know, Emmy's from another country and they speak another language. And uh, we were in Greece. They're actually from Albania, so Albania is their primary tongue. And uh, about the second or third night, um, we're making up the couch in the living room to, for me to sleep on to get ready for bed. And... Emmy's mom comes in, and uh, the whole time I'd been sleeping on a couch, and then the couch next to it, by the time you laid them out flat, it was like Emmy's dad and I were essentially sleeping in the same bed. That's how close we were on these two sofas in their small apartment. And Emmy's mom walks over, and she sits on the arm of the couch, and she puts her hand on my shoulder, and she says, Ken, and this is what I heard. She says, Ken, don't fart. Don't fart. <laughs> And I looked at Emmy and I was like, um, what did she say? And she said, no, no, no. She said, Ken, dona, dona, well, how do you say it? Dona fart there. Dona fart. So you could see the mistake. <laughs> dona fart. And I was like, what? Did your dad complain? And Emmy, Emmy laughs and after she gets over her laughter, she said, it actually is just Albanian for we love you very much. 
Um, but honestly, the, the act of her action of coming over and, and you know, sort of touching me, on, that expressed this uh, amazing amount of love. Uh, the words just were messed up. So here, as we think about putting this chapter into practice, we're thinking about becoming a church who is known for our love. That's the kind of church we want to be, that when people talk about Christ Church LA, they would, they would say, that is the most loving church I've ever been to. Um, I just want this to, question to rattle around in your head. Who in your life this, this week needs to receive love by way of words? Feeble as they might be. Uh, who, who in your life needs to just hear a donut fart? Feeble as it might be. And also, as we move forward through this text, it's, it's worth asking not who do you need to share words with, but maybe who do you need to share less words with? Like, who in, who in your life are you that word vomit person onto, and you actually need to share less words with and just more loving action? Because uh, here's the thing. Our words, they're only truly excellent if we're following the most excellent way of love. And so our words, no matter how great or feeble, they're only excellent if their source is love. So those are excellent words. Let's look at uh, excellent thoughts. Look again at verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And Paul mentions four kinds of, I'm putting it in air quotes here, thoughts, uh, four things that belong to the mind. So he talks about prophecy, he talks about uh, understanding mysteries, he talks about knowledge, and he talks about faith. These are all things that have to do with the mind, and these are all the superlatives, by the way. He's just got done getting you to think of the greatest, most excellent uh, ability to speak, and now he's talking about the greatest ways God might gift someone to use their mind. And so think of the person who can fathom not just some mysteries, but all mysteries, who knows all knowledge and has such strong faith they can actually pick up a mountain and move it. No one can do all those things. These are, these are superlatives. You're meant to think, wow, this is a very gifted person. And so when we think of a prophet, by the way, we think of someone who has a tiny little darkly lit room where you entered through, you know, those little beads that you go through uh, in their doorway and the prophet is in there and they ask you why they're there. And then you think, well, shouldn't you know, because that's your job. But that's not what Paul has in mind. The biblical prophets, yes, sometimes they tell something of the future. But mostly when the Bible talks about a prophet or prophecy, it's talking about the ability to speak the truth no matter how difficult it will be to hear it. And so prophet in the Bible is someone who knows and then proclaims that truth. And the particularly gifted prophet Paul talks about here, this one knows all mysteries. And that's the Bible's term for divine secrets that only God knows and reveals. So this particular prophet knows all of them. And then this hypothetical prophet also can fathom all knowledge that he or she knows the entire contents of Wikipedia. They understand electrical engineering. They have the entirety of Grey's Anatomy memorized, the book, not the TV show, but since they have all knowledge, the TV show too. But even more than their knowledge, look at this person's faith. They can move mountains. The word here for faith is something like the quality which gives us mastery over life's difficulties. In other words, it's, it's the firmness of our belief. Now again, these are superlatives. This is a hypothetically exceptionally gifted person uh, that Paul, Paul's talking about here. But notice again what he says, not about the gifts, 
What about, he ta- he's talking about the person who has these gifts. Look again at the end of verse two. If I have all these things, but do not have love, I am nothing. I am nothing. Let me try and bring this from the hypothetical into reality. I, I have a friend, uh, someone who does a similar job as me, and every time I see him or talk to him on the phone, he gives me tons of unsolicited advice. Do you have this friend? Uh, sometimes I answer the phone when he calls and he's already giving the advice. Uh, it's like he was already having the conversation without me and then he decided, oh, I should include Ken on this, these amazing words that I'm speaking right now. And you pick up that he's already talking. And here's the thing, it's oft, it often is very good advice. Oftentimes it's great advice that comes from a knowledge and an experience that I could greatly benefit from. These are all excellent thoughts that this person is sharing with me. But I'm always uncomfortable in the conversation. And I could never really put my finger on why. Now I think I, the reason is, is what Paul's talking about here. The source of that is not love. The person's not calling me out of love. They're calling me for, with some other motive. They're sharing knowledge, even biblical knowledge. And, and that, that actually can actually be harmful if it's not done in love. It can be destructive rather than constructive. It can be painful and rude and discouraging rather than encouraging. Even the truth can be that. That's just what Paul is getting at when he says, I can have all these excellent thoughts, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute, but first let me contrast the friend I just shared with another. Uh, a couple of days ago, I was at a meeting with some other pastors in our group of churches uh, called Converge uh, from the L.A. area. And at the meeting was one of the leaders of Converge, someone I've known for a while now. And this is a person who every single time I see him, as we part ways at the end of being together, he will say to me, I love you. Now, this is also a person who has an extraordinary amount of knowledge and experience and faith. Every time he opens his mouth, out comes wisdom. And while we're at this gathering, he said to me during one of the breaks, hey, uh, before you go, I just I want to talk to you uh, for a minute. And now the rest of the morning, I'm like looking forward to this. He's got some knowledge. He's going to share some, some wisdom with me. I'll be able to, to go home and share it with all of you. And, and this is going to be great. And after the meeting is over, um, he takes me aside to have our conversation. Do you know what he said to me? Uh, he said, hey, I love you and Emmy. And I just want to make sure you guys are doing okay. I know that church planting is really hard, so if you ever need anything, you just let me know. That was it. Now, this is a man who could share knowledge for days and days on end, and I'd still have more to learn from him. But his starting point with me, a person from whom I have a lot to learn, is love. Now, who do you think I call when I need advice? Which of those two friends? So now that we've grounded this in reality, I want to make sure we see something else in here because not only is Paul's point the same as before, you can be exceptionally gifted with excellent thoughts, an excellent mind, great faith, but if you use those gifts without love, you're nothing. But his other point from before also remains. And once again, the, the idea is that the more you use this gift of your mind without love, the more you become nothing. In other words, the more you exercise your excellent thoughts without love, the more nothing you become. 
But also, as before, flip that around. The more that love becomes the source of your knowledge, the more excellent and valuable your knowledge, advice, wisdom, faith on behalf of another person, the more valuable that becomes. Even if it's people, even if you only know that much, even if you only have that much wisdom to share, that shared with love is far more valuable than somebody who knows all things and shares it without love. And so sometimes all that's required to be a good friend is actually to ask more questions than to give answers, to listen rather than to speak. Some of the men earlier, um, well, at the end of last year, were looking at the book of Proverbs on friendship, and I can't remember if this was one of them or not, but Proverbs 18.13, this is just great wisdom for life, shared from love, from a father to his son. That's what the book of Proverbs is. And it says, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. Now, the reality is this sort of listening before answering thing, it's, it's a real challenge to our culture. Um, and, you know, when Emmy and I were living overseas, we'd come back and visit, and we always experienced reverse culture shock in lots of things. But one of the things that we would experience is we'd be with friends and family that we, you know, spent tons and tons of time with throughout our lives. We'd come back, and we'd meet up with them, and we'd have a great time, but we'd drive away from hanging out, feeling somewhat less than satisfied with the conversation. And... We, we just thought for days and weeks about why that was, and one day it dawned on us that uh, the, the style of conversation between Americans and Brits is very different. So the way that we talk as Americans is like, you share a story, and that sparks one in my head, so I share a story, and then the other person's like, oh, that reminded me of this thing, and then they share a story, and then we just go around swapping stories, and we might have started talking about, I don't know, stock car racing. I don't know why that's my example. I've never watched a stock car race in my life. <laughs> But we'll finish talking about gardening. And it was just this story got to this story, got to this story, got to this story, got to this story. And we had a great time. We really enjoyed each other. And we built our friendship even. But in the end, we just felt sort of dissatisfied with those conversations. Uh, and we realized that actually the way that our British friends would have conversations is they take a topic and then they just delve deep into it. So you might bring up stock car racing. And then they'll be like, oh, well, who's your favorite driver? Oh, and what's your favorite racetrack? And you just keep going and going and going deeper and deeper into the conversation. So there's just two different ways of having conversations. And I'm not suggesting that we change American culture because it is fun to swap stories. But what I am saying is there's something we can learn from that other culture that it's important from time to time to intentionally step out of that way that we like to converse and allow love to be more the source of our side of the conversation. To learn to ask questions and to listen Maybe even sometimes to mercifully hold back on advice and ponder if there's a different way you can show love to the person you're speaking with. There's just something that I think we can learn there. So we've seen that you can have excellent words, but without love, you become just a loud noise. We've seen that you can have excellent thoughts, but without love, you become nothing. And then thirdly, Paul talks about excellent deeds. Look again at verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And this now is the height of Paul's hypothetical situations, because notice the superlatives here. Give up all I possess to the poor, everything I have, my house, my clothes, my car, my phone, my computer, my everything. If I give all of that up, but then he takes it to the ultimate, he goes even past that. And he says, and I don't know why the NIV translation we're using use such, such soft language, um, because Paul actually, you know, here he says uh, to hard give my body to hardship, uh, but it's actually give over my body to be burned. 
In other words, give up my body to torture to the point of death. That's, that's the ultimate superlative. That, like, we can't do anything beyond that. But Paul says even that would be fruitless without love. Now, again, these are the superlatives. He goes to the extremes here to point out that even the everyday ways we could do good deeds for the sake of others, they're also fruitless without love. Now, here's one way to think about it. Uh, have you ever come across on YouTube? Actually, some of you work in films, so you might see this more often, but I don't, so I can only find this on YouTube. Uh, but there are all sorts of, of film clips where they've taken the musical score out of a really dramatic scene uh, to show how important having the right music behind the scene is to the, the mood and the tone of the film. So this is just a simple example. There's no, there's a very simple example from Lord of the Rings of three guys on their way to do a really good deed of saving their friends from capture and then on to save the world. So you'll probably recognize this scene. So here we go. have to watch the rest later. I think that's from the two towers. Um, here it is without any musical score underneath. It's just three guys running. It's way less dramatic. Uh, now for fun, um, let's, there's one last version I'd like to share with you. Go ahead. Okay, that's good. Um, I think Amazon bought the rights to that. I think the show they're coming out with is the Benny Hill produced version, so it should be really good fun. Um, the second or possibly the third version there, that's sort of like Deeds Without Love. Uh, it's just three guys running. Um, and just like the other two hypotheticals, Paul says the result of your deeds without love is nothing. Only notice this time he says, I gain nothing. Another way to translate that is to say, I accomplish nothing. In other words, I could go to the greatest lengths of self-denial to give away everything I own, even to give up my body to be burned. But if love is not the source of my giving, of my excellent deeds, then I've accomplished nothing. Now, that actually sounds very strange to us, because isn't a good deed just a good deed regardless of the motivation? Well, not exactly. Because without love as its source, the good deed actually becomes a selfishness. It becomes something you're doing so that you can pat yourself on the back. It, it might look like self-denial on the outside, but in reality, it's a selfish act. Uh, there's an old Scottish pastor, and he, he talks about this passage this way. He says, the absence of love implies selfishness. The point of the passage is that conceivably a Christian might make the supreme sacrifice from some motive other than love. Actions themselves have no intrinsic value. Their worth, both as manifestations of character and as spiritual gain to the actor, depend entirely upon their motive. And while the sense of duty may be a worthy one, the highest and noblest motive is love. Now, here's the point. Even our most feeble attempts at self-denying love for the sake of another person 
if done out of love, is of great value. They're actually more valuable than the most costly acts of self-denial without love. Do you see that? This is what Paul is saying, is that even your, just, your, your baby acts, your weakest acts, motivated by love, is more valuable. And so offering simple hospitality to a stranger, or even to a friend, if motivated out of love, is of greater value if motivated out of love than if you gave them your house without love. Giving up an hour to do or to help uh, your neighbor with a simple task, if done out of love, is more valuable than giving a hundred hours without love. Giving a dollar out of love is, more, is of more value than a thousand not out of love. And so I think you see the point here. Now, the converse again is also true. A home-cooked meal, an hour or even less, a dollar can also be of no value if not done out of love. So let's just step back now and look at these three verses as a whole. Paul is talking about the most excellent words, the most excellent thoughts, the most excellent deeds, and you could do these types of things to the highest degree, but without love, they're nothing. And the point is this, even if you do the most infinitesimal act, but motivated by love, it is of infinite value both to the person that you're serving and to your own maturity as a Christian. But let me take a step even further back and ask, is it possible for someone to reach this hypothetical ideal? A lot of scholars seem to think Paul is talking about himself here, that he's the great orator, able to speak in the tongues of angels, according to chapter 14. He's the brilliant theologian, the prophet, who wrote most of the books in the New Testament. He essentially lives his life as a poor traveler. He's given up his body to be beaten on numerous occasions in order to spread the gospel and plant church churches. So yeah, it's possible that Paul's thinking about himself with these hypotheticals, but I think he's thinking about someone else. Because only Jesus Christ has lived up to these hypotheticals. When it comes to Jesus Christ, none of these are hypotheticals for him. Not one of them. They're all lived out realities by the Son of God who came in the flesh. Everything he did was motivated by love because, as we saw a couple weeks ago, he himself is love. Remember, the Apostle John defines God as love, and Jesus Christ is God, and so therefore Jesus Christ is love incarnate. Every word he ever spoke, spoke and speaks today in the throne room of heaven is motivated and can only be motivated by love. Every thought he has is utterly motivated by love. And ultimately, look at his sacrificial deeds. He gave up everything to come and serve us. In another place in the Bible, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus Christ emptied himself. It actually says, get this, it actually says he became nothing. He gave up heaven. He didn't grasp those things. He gave them up. He gave up the comforts of the heavenly throne room where he was continuously worshipped by angels and loved eternally by the Father through the Spirit, where he was wrapped in light and luxury for all eternity. It says that he gave that all up. He emptied himself. But even more than that, he gave up his body to torture to the point of death. But because he is God and God is love, he was love incarnate. Every word, every thought, especially every deed, even more so his death on a cross, all of that was motivated by love. 
which means his life and his death are of ultimate value. He is of ultimate value to you and to me because it's only through his life, his death, and his resurrection that we can receive the love of God and the forgiveness of our sins. It's only through the love-motivated life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven. Of all the sinful and hurtful words and thoughts and deeds that we've ever done, And through Jesus Christ, and only through him, can we be transformed into men and women whose entire lives are motivated by this love we've been talking about. That over time, our words, our thoughts, our deeds are more and more motivated by love until we reach the point of maturity. And if we can get this, and if we can just begin to live it out in the smallest, most simple ways, we'll not only see the lives of those around us changed, our friends Roommates, neighbors, colleagues, people in this neighborhood will not only see their lives transformed, but we'll actually begin to find ourselves with an ever-increasing capacity to love and practice self-denying love. Around here, we talk about Christian growth or maturity as a long obedience in the same direction, which is a phrase we borrowed from Eugene Peterson, who stole it from Friedrich Nietzsche. But here's what I want us to grasp from all three of these things, that whatever your starting point whatever your giftedness with words, your giftedness in thought, your giftedness or ability with doing good deeds for the sake of others. If you do them with love as the source, then there is no end to the value of your words, thoughts, and deeds for the sake of others. And even more so for your own growth and maturity. But it's the long obedience in the same direction. So it's just, what loving thing can I do today? What's the next loving thing that I can do? And here's what's lying just below the surface in this passage. And, you know, we tend to think that for me to mature, for me to become a more holistic and well-rounded person, for me to mature as a Christian, where do I have to put my focus? We think I have to put it on me. What do I need to do for me in order to love myself? But let's step all the way back and look at what this passage says, because What this passage says, this passage that, by the way, the whole world seems to love and respect regardless of their beliefs about God. There's even a mural of this passage on York Avenue. This passage doesn't say focus on yourself. The entirety of these 13 verses adds up to saying that if you want to mature, the most excellent way, really the only way to do that is to focus on loving other people. That's it. That's how we do it. And so let's just wrap this up. Our words, our thoughts, and our deeds, they only become excellent when motivated by love. And so let's become excellent people. Let's become this excellent church who live the most excellent way, people who are growing in love, people who are every word that we have, every thought in our mind, every deed that we do begins to be motivated by love. And just start with where you are. Don't try and be someone else. Just start with where you are. One little act of love, and then another, and then another, and then another, and eventually you'll see that you've walked a really long road and become this most excellent person. Uh, Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for the way that it challenges us. Um, Lord, for the way that uh, it just doesn't let us Muse on isn't love a nice thing, but Lord, it challenges us to the point that uh, we have to rest 
in the love that you have for us. We have to trust in that. We have to lean on that. And so, Lord, help us to become that kind of church. The one that when people think about us, all they can say is, man, those people know how to love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.